Welcome to Crime, Corruption, and Cocktails, the true crime podcast where we look at cases of corruption and negligence and examine their historical and cultural implications. Today, I'm drinking a fuzzy navel. What are you drinking, Del? I am drinking a Mai Tai, and on this week's episode, we are going to look at the death of Gabby Petito, a young woman who set out to explore the world and found the darkest part of it, allegedly at the hands of the man she trusted the most. Gabrielle Partito was born on March 19, 1999 in Blue Point, New York. She attended Bayport Blue Point High School where she met Brian Laudry. In 2019, Gabby began dating Brian and she moved with Brian and his parents to North Point, Florida. Gabby was a constant on social media and documented her travels and her interests in yoga, art, and veggies. In late 2019 to early 2020, Gabby and Brian traveled from New York State to California. Along the way, they visited New York Yosemite Park and other points of interest. In December 2020, Petito purchased a 2012 Ford Transit Connect van converted into a camper in which to take on their next cross-country trip. On June 17, 2021, Gabby and Brian attended her brother's graduation ceremony in Blue Point, New York. They then began their road trip visiting Monument Rocks, Great Sand Dunes National Park and Preserve Zion National Park during the following months. On August 12, 2021, a witness called 911 claiming that a couple was fighting in front of the Moonflower Community Cooperative in Moab, Utah. The caller told the dispatcher they saw a man slap a woman, and after the two ran up and down the sidewalk, the man hit the woman again and then drove off. The couple was later identified as Gabby and Brian. Another witness described the incident to police, saying that Petito and Brian were talking quote-unquote aggressively and that Gabby, quote, was punching him in the arm, end quote. The witness said it looked like Brian was trying to leave Gabby and take her phone with him before she eventually climbed into the driver's seat, moved over into the passenger seat, and asked, quote, why do you have to be so mean, end quote, before they drove off. Officers from the Moab City Police Department, the MCPD, identified the van near the entrance to the National Park and conducted a traffic stop. They found Gabby crying heavily in the passenger seat where she told officers captured on body cam footage, quote, I've been really stressed and he doesn't really believe that I could do any of it. So we've just been fighting all morning and he wouldn't let me in the car before, end quote. After the officer pointed out marks on her arm and face and told her to, quote unquote, just be honest, she told the officer that Brian, quote, kept telling me to shut up, end quote, and, quote, grabbed my face, end quote, which had produced an injury. Brian told the officer, quote, I said, let's just take a breather and not go anywhere and just calm down for a minute. She was getting worked up. And then she said I had her phone and was trying to get the keys from me. I was just trying to push her away to go. Let's take a minute and step back and breathe and see she got me with her phone. End quote. In their report, the officers wrote, quote, At no point in my investigation did Gabrielle stop crying, breathing heavily, or compose a sentence without needing to wipe away tears, wipe her nose, or rub her knees with her hands. The male tried to create distance by telling Gabby to take a walk to calm down. She did not want to be separated from the male and began slapping him. He grabbed her face and pushed her back as she pressed upon him in the van, end quote. 
The police officers listed this incident as a mental health break instead of domestic violence. A domestic violence call would have required an arrest and neither Gabby nor Brian wanted to pursue any charges. The police separated the couple, arranging for laundry to spend a night at the Bowen Motel in Moab and for Petito to stay in the van. On August 17th, Laundry took a flight from Salt Lake City to Tampa, Florida without Gabby. While Brian was in Florida, Gabby stayed at the Fairfield Inn and Suites Hotel near Salt Lake City International Airport, checking out on August 24th. Laundry returned on August 23rd to rejoin Petito and continue the trip. On August 25th, the final post was made on Petito's Instagram account, which consisted of photos of herself taken in front of a butterfly mural outside of a restaurant in Ogden, Utah. This was also the last day that Gabby's mother spoke to her, and she had been told that the couple were traveling from Utah to Grand Teton and Yellowstone National Parks. The following are eyewitness accounts of Gabby and Brian's movement after Gabby's final post. A witness claimed that on August 27th, between 1 p.m. and 2 p.m., she saw Laundry and Petito together at Mary Piglet's, a Tex-Mex restaurant in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Per the witness, Laundry had an argument with the manager, waitress, and hostess, apparently about money, and was quote-unquote aggressive. The witness said she later saw Petito return to the restaurant crying and apologizing for Laundry's behavior. Another witness reportedly contacted the Federal Bureau of Investigation to report the activities and coordinates of a slow-moving white van and a generic young white man, quote-unquote, acting weird near the Spread Creek dispersed camping area on August 26th, 27th, and possibly 28th. A woman claimed in a TikTok video that on August 29th, she and her boyfriend gave Laundry a lift from an area near Coulter Bay Village after seeing him hitchhiking alone. She reported that Laundry, quote-unquote, freaked out upon learning that they were going to Jackson Hole instead of Jackson, Wyoming. He, quote-unquote, freaked out disembarking the vehicle at 6.09 p.m. near the Jackson Lake Dam, less than 30 minutes after being picked up. Another witness stated that she picked up Laundry from the Jackson Lake Dam at 6.20 or 6.30 p.m. on August 29th, dropping him off at the entrance to the Spread Creek Dispersed Camping Area. According to the witness, Laundry acted quote-unquote antsy about getting out of the vehicle before it got closer to the campsite. On September 1st, 2021, Laundry returned alone to his parents' home in Northport, Florida in the Ford Transit. On September 6th and 7th, 2021, Laundry and his parents went camping at Fort DeSoto Park in Pinellas County. Petito's mother filed a missing person report on September 11th after not hearing from her daughter since late August. Four days later, Laundrie was named a person of interest. Laundrie's parents hired a lawyer and, based on his advice, remained silent, refusing to talk to anyone about the case. Police surveilled the Laundrie home and saw him leave on September 13th. On September 15th, they saw his car return. Police believed the person who exited the car and entered the home was Laundrie. On September 17th, Laundrie was reported missing by his parents, who claimed to have not seen him since September 13th. It was at this time that police realized they had mistook Laundrie's mother for Laundrie himself on September 15th. After obtaining search warrants, police seized the Ford Transit, an external hard drive, and the Laundrie family's Ford Mustang from the North Point residence.
On September 19th, human remains matching the description of Petito were found at the Spread Creek Dispersed Camping Area in Wyoming, not far from where the Ford Transit was previously observed. Her identity was confirmed and an autopsy determined that the manner of death was homicide by strangulation, which occurred three to four weeks before the body was found. On September 23rd, the United States District Court for the District of Wyoming issued an arrest warrant for Brian due to his unauthorized use of someone else's debit card to obtain $1,000 or more between August 30th and September 1st. Brian's father joined investigators in searching for his son at the T. Mabry Carlton Reserve in Sarasota County, Florida, focusing on areas he used to frequent in the reserve and the adjacent creek environmental park. On October 20th, Brian Lawtree's skeletal remains confirmed by forensic dentistry and some of his belongings were found in the park in an area that had recently been underwater due to flooding. On November 23rd, it was announced that the autopsy had concluded that Brian died of a self-inflicted gunshot wound and that the manner of death was suicide. Jenny, what do you think of the Gabby Petito case? At first, I really was not paying much attention when a lot of this was on the news. I think it's interesting that the case did get so much attention. I know we're going to talk about a potential reason why in a little bit, but I think her being an influencer of some sort got a lot of people interested. It's really eerie watching the police body cam videos. And honestly, I hope the officers involved feel ashamed and or somehow reprimanded. I don't think they were because I think the agency kind of upheld their actions, but it really just shows that law enforcement needs better domestic violence training and to learn how to pick up on signals and behaviors that abusers do use. They kind of sided with Brian from the start, it seemed, and at least the one officer was dismissive of Gabby and her mental health in general. If there were reports about this man slapping a woman multiple times, doesn't really seem like they asked him any of that in the body cam that I've seen. That's the accusation that this man is like slapping this woman. That's not to say that Gabby wasn't, you know, getting physical herself, but there's accusations on both ends and I feel like they really only focused on um Gabby's. It's so sad watching this video too. I was re-watching it again last night and she just seems so jittery and anxious and to me it really seems like she's kind of thinking of a way to not get Brian in trouble. Like she's kind of oh we did this and it's just my fault because I'm doing all of this stuff and I'm just so overwhelmed and he doesn't always understand that. It is kind of like victim of domestic violence behavior, I think. There's a lot of controversy around Brian's family, and I definitely think they were involved in protecting him to an extent, and even potentially like hiding his remains. I haven't heard too much about the case since after it was discovered that he did die from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. It seems kind of like it uh, like disappeared from headlines, like no one's really talking about it anymore. But it's going to be interesting to see if his family is held accountable in any sort of way. I think he kind of knew he was never going to get away with this, because he just came home alone and had like no explanation as far as I know as to where Gabby was and why she wasn't with him. And then of course, once, you know, the media really latched onto this, I think he knew that there was no way of him getting out of this. And that's probably why he decided to commit suicide. What about you? 
Yeah, I think this case really took the world by storm when it was first happening and she was missing. And then I agree with you, once it was determined that he had died from a self-inflicted wound, people aren't really talking people aren't really talking about it as much. I think that people view that as a conclusion. I think it's hard to believe that there's any alternative scenario to that case. Before we jump into our discussion, we did want to mention that it has been theorized that Brian Lawtree may have been responsible for the murders of Crystal Turner and Kylan Sheckle. The women were married and living on a campsite near where Gabby and Brian had their encounter with the Moab police. The women have reported being harassed by an unknown man. They were later found raped and murdered. While there is no evidence of Brian's involvement in these murders, it is definitely something that we wanted to mention. So getting into our discussion, we've talked about domestic violence on this podcast before, but we wanted to revisit it with a specific lens on some of the laws that were enacted to help domestic violence victims and the failures that happened in this case. In 1994, Congress passed the Violence Against Women Act, or the VAWA. This act and the 1996 additions to the act recognize that domestic violence is a national crime and that federal laws can help an overburden state and local criminal justice system. It is a federal crime under the VAWA to cross state lines or enter or leave Indian country to physically injure an intimate partner. It is also illegal to cross state lines to harass or stalk and to violate a qualifying protection order. In VAWA cases, the court must order restitution to pay the victim the full amount of loss. These losses include costs of medical or psychological care, physical therapy, transportation, temporary housing, child care expenses, loss of income, attorney's fees, costs incurred in obtaining a civil protection order, and any other losses suffered by the victim as a result of the offense. In 1994 and 1996, Congress also passed changes to the Gun Control Act, making it a federal crime in certain situations for domestic violence abusers to possess guns. Each state has its own laws pertaining to domestic violence, and we are going to take a closer look at Utah laws where the police stop in this particular case took place. Under Utah's laws, if a police officer has probable cause to believe that domestic violence has occurred, the officer must make an arrest without a warrant or issue a citation or a ticket. As we stated earlier, the police interaction between the Moab police, Gabby and Brian, was characterized as a mental disturbance and not domestic violence. This was despite the fact that Brian admitted to causing an injury to Gabby. If the officer has probable cause to believe the victim will continue to be in danger or that the defendant has recently caused serious injury or used a dangerous weapon, the officer must make an arrest and take the defendant into custody. In Gabby's case, the officers took the steps of separating Gabby and Brian by putting Brian in a hotel, but despite this step, they did not arrest him, which would have added additional protections for Gabby. People who are arrested for domestic violence may not personally contact the victim before being released and may not be released from jail before the next court day unless they are ordered as a condition of their release not to personally contact the victim, harass the victim, or go to the victim's residence. 
Jenny, what are your thoughts on the laws we already have in place to protect domestic violence victims? And what other laws would you enact? I think that gun violence laws are really great and I would kind of like to see more of those. I'm sure a lot of people know that having a gun in the household increases the chance for violence and I think we oftentimes see gun violence in the past linked to domestic violence in the present. So they really go hand in hand. So I was going to say national nationalizing the TROs, the restraining orders, having a national system, because a lot of times, unfortunately, people can abuse someone in one state, just move to a next, and that criminal history is not moving with them. This isn't a law necessarily, but like I said earlier, I would really like to see some type of essential domestic violence training. Like you need this type of qualification or you need to pass this course on domestic violence or intimate partner violence to kind of get further in your career and to truly better be able to handle cases and to help people if that's your goal. Gabby isn't alone in kind of not being protected by the police in regards to domestic violence. And, you know, maybe the police involved truly didn't pick up on it. And there's an issue if they couldn't, because a lot of people who have watched this video could clearly pick up on something, whether we knew what the end result of the case would be or not. What about you? So I definitely agree with you. I'm fine with each state having its own laws that can really address the specific things that happen in that state. I do think that we need a national registry of domestic violence abusers just to make sure that people aren't using moving as a way to circumvent any restraining orders that may be placed against them. And I also think that we need stricter penalties for people that are convicted of domestic violence offenses. And we need to, like you said, make sure that police officers are getting the correct training that they need to be able to identify when someone may be a victim of domestic violence. And I think this goes beyond just physical domestic violence, but also being able to spot the signs of emotional domestic violence as well. Gabby's case also brought back the conversation surrounding what is termed missing white woman syndrome. Missing white woman syndrome is a term used by social scientists and media commentators to refer to the media coverage, especially in television, of missing person cases involving young, white, upper middle class women or girls compared to the alleged relative lack of attention towards missing women who are not white, women of lower social classes, and missing men or boys. Jean Murley, an English professor and scholar of true crime, stated, quote, That's an undeniable fact. There's something about the missing, young, beautiful white woman that has a lot of symbolic weight in America. It's an aberration, and it becomes a container for things like the loss of innocence or the death of purity, end quote. Eduardo Bonilla Silva categorized the racial component of missing white woman syndrome as a, quote, form of racial grammar through which white supremacy is normalized by implicit or even invisible standards, end quote. The phenomenon has been highlighted in the United States, Canada, the United Kingdom, South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, and other predominantly white countries. A report that aired on CNN in 2006 noted the differences in the level of media coverage given to missing white women such as Lacey Peterson and Natalie Holloway when compared to the level of coverage given to Latoya Figueroa, a pregnant black Hispanic woman. Figueroa disappeared in Philadelphia in 2005, the same year Holloway disappeared. 
2019, two criminologists published an open access research article about the missing white women syndrome. They examined four years worth of coverage in 11 different U.S. magazines, and they found that missing white women and girls received more initial and repeated coverage than missing black women. According to a 2008 study published in the Law and Society Association, First Nations women who go missing in Canada receive 27 times less news coverage than white women. They also receive dispassionate and less detailed headlines, articles, and images. Several laws have been created in the aftermath of disappearance cases and are sometimes informally named after the missing person. Commentators have observed that appearances of white women give rise to such laws more often than missing non-white women or missing men. Examples include Lacey and Connors Law, named after Lacey Peterson, Amber Alert Laws, Jessica Laws, Kaylee's Laws, and Megan's Laws. Jenny, what are your feelings on missing white woman syndrome? And do you think it's a real thing? It's definitely a real thing. And I think these researchers have shown that the numbers do support it. It's really devastating. And it's something that we've talked about before. It's not fair that the media can place more importance on someone's life than someone else's. Um, all because of their race, their social status, their gender, their perceived innocence. It's not fair. Everyone deserves the equal opportunity for justice. Every family deserves that. Gabby's family definitely did acknowledge that she received more attention because she was a young white blonde woman. And I really applaud them for the way that they've handled things. It's interesting about the laws that come from these different cases. I never put two and two together or had ever heard that argument before. So thank you for bringing that up. You mentioned Canada and First Nations women. We did the Trail of Tears episode and we mentioned that multiple times. Like some of the researchers have said this perceived innocence that white women are just like inherently more childlike or innocent and they need more protection than a black woman who many people might believe well a black woman is tough she can really fend for herself and sometimes the framing in these articles is really clearly unfair you see this with like mass shooters too how you know the recent college graduate young beautiful woman something like that versus maybe an article of someone that is black or brown, they would maybe be focused on some stereotypical aspects, or maybe if it's a, you know, someone that was at risk with a risky lifestyle, someone working in sex work, for example, which we've talked about, sex workers often don't get the attention they deserve either. Aspects of that part of their life might be more focused on than quote unquote good parts of their personality and who they truly were. What do you think? I absolutely agree with you. It is definitely a real thing. And it's definitely something that I feel like although the media is aware of it and aware of what they're doing, they haven't taken any real steps to address it. And I think that a lot of times they think that they are making up for it by covering the shooting deaths of black men at the hands of police. And it's definitely not the same thing. I also thought it was really interesting how many laws have been created in the aftermath of disappearance cases. The ones that I named were just a sample of them. The research is clear, like you said, that this is a thing. I'm not quite sure what we can do. At the end of the day, the media is driven by who is paying attention to stuff. So possibly if we show them that we care about missing 
minorities just like we care about missing white women. Maybe they will change their mind. That wraps up this week's case. Thank you for listening. Let us know in the comments what you think about the murder of Gabby Petito. You can read more about this case and how to support us in the links below. We will be back next week with a brand new episode focused on the death of Rebecca Zahao and Max Shackknife. As always, stay safe. Thank <laughs> you.